1961, Adolf Eichmann was arrested and put on trial. Eichmann, you'll remember, was the mastermind behind the death camps of the SS and the Nazis during World War II when they tried to exterminate the Jews and were responsible for the deaths of over six million Jews in these death camps, places like Auschwitz and Treblinka and Medanik, Dachau. Um, and Eichmann was put on trial, and it was one of the first trials ever to be televised. And during the trial, they would bring in people who had survived the death camps as witnesses. And one of those men was a man by the name of Yehiel Denur. And when Yehiel Denur came in to testify, when he saw Eichmann, he fell to the ground sobbing and passed out. In fact, you can see the video on YouTube. They, he's out cold, and they're picking him up. He's lifeless as they try to bring him and revive him and bring him to a chair and wake him up. 22 years later, Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes interviewed Yehiel Denur, and he showed him that clip of him passing out. And then he asked the question, what was going through your mind when this happened? I mean, I mean was it, were you just overwhelmed with anger? Just, you just wanted to kill this man? Is that what it was? Or? Or were you just overwhelmed with fear, like this is your former persecutor, the one who was responsible for so many deaths, uh, the deaths of your people? Were you, were you just afraid and just overwhelmed with fear? And Denur shocked Mike Wallace and everybody who's ever seen this interview because he said, oh, no, it wasn't any of that. I saw Eichmann and I realized this is no demon. This is no Superman. This is a man just like me. And if he could do that, I could do that. And then he said these very memorable words. He said, Eichmann is in all of us. Eichmann is in all of us. See, according to scriptures, there is an evil in the world, and it's not just an evil that is out there somewhere. It's an evil in here. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was the writer about the Soviet gulag and the, and the uh, inhumanities that happened in that, he said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. The race, the human race is capable of some really bad things. I mean, you know that. I, you know that to be true. Not, not just because you've read history books about the Nazis and not just because you watch the news occasionally, but you have experienced this in yourself. There are things that you have thought, things that you have said, things that you have done that when you look back on them and you remember them, you're horrified. How could I have thought such a wicked thought? How, how could I have, have said something so selfish and self-centered? How could I have done this or done that or watched this or, or that or seen someone hurting and done nothing about it? How is it possible? And the answer, according to the Bible, is pretty simple. Sin. Now, sin is a word that you don't hear very often. It, it's kind of begun to fade out of the, uh, our culture's collective vocabulary. We, there was a time when we talked more about sin, but our culture now tries to kind of ignore it as if there is no such thing as sin. But according to the Bible, that's the problem. See, according to the Bible, we were created for this amazingly close relationship with God and with each other. He put us in a perfect context without sin, without death, and then sin entered the story as an intruder into God's good creation, and death came as a result of sin. And even worse than that, even worse than death, this relationship we had with God was affected. Sin 
twisted us into something we weren't originally created to be. And all of a sudden, we weren't right with God anymore. We were at odds with God. I mean, this is the worst possible thing that could have happened. We were at odds with our creator, the one who gave us life. We were at odds with the greatest, most holy, most beautiful, most majestic, most powerful, most loving person in the universe. God himself. So the question becomes, how are we going to be made right with God? The, the technical term for that is justified. We sang it in a song by Jesus Christ the righteous. We're justified. It was read in the, the text in, in Galatians 2. To be justified means to be declared right or made right. In fact, one scholar translates this Greek word that we translate justify as righted. How are we going to be righted with God? And then, having been made right with God, how do we conquer the power of sin in our life? This force, this evil that is out there, and it's not just out there, it's in here. How, how are we made right with God, and then how do we conquer sin? Well, those are two of the most important questions you'll ever ask. And we've been in this book in this series of, on Galatians, and we're arriving in chapter 2, the text that was read today. And to kind of catch those of you up who haven't been here, uh, the context for Galatians is this. There were a number of, when, when the gospel started and, and the day of Pentecost happened uh, and the church was being born, the first believers were Jewish Christians. But as the gospel went out, more non-Jewish people became believers, and so Paul goes through Galatia, Acts 13 and 14, and a number of non-Jewish people, become Gentiles, become believers. And when Paul leaves, some of the Jewish believers come back and say, listen, I'm glad that you believe in Jesus, but it's not enough just to believe in Jesus. You also have to follow the law to be saved. And by the way, and they pulled out a knife, you need to be circumcised. And the Galatians, especially the men, said, Paul didn't say anything about that. And these, this group of the circumcision says to them, well, you know, Paul's not really an apostle. He's kind of a B-postle. You know, he, he wasn't really with Jesus. Uh, and he's kind of watering down the gospel so that you guys can get in and make it easier on you. And the problem wasn't just that he, they were questioning Paul's apostleship. They were questioning the gospel. And they were therefore dividing the people of God, the body of Christ. See, both Jews and Gentiles were supposed to be united by the gospel as the one new family of God. Now, the people from the circumcision group are dividing them. We got Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers, Gentiles. And Paul responds quickly and decisively with white-hot emotion in the book of Galatians and razor-sharp logic. And he says, if anybody comes preaching another gospel, remember we said this a couple weeks ago, he said they can go to hell. He's very emotional here. This is not like polite church talk. He's angry because he sees this as something dangerous. We got to get the gospel right. And so two weeks ago, we asked, what is the gospel? Why is it important? Last week, we looked at this interaction that he had with Peter, and we culminated with verses 15 and 16, which says, he's still talking to Peter, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now listen, nothing could be more important than this. 
Nothing is more practically helpful in life's darkest moments than the gospel. Recently, we just here come through a period of time where we had five funerals in 10 days. Five funerals in 10 days. Thankfully, uh, Dad did one of the funerals. We did one of them together. Kevin Wu did one of the funerals. Very grateful for that. And when, and when you're helping families dealing with walking through the valley of the shadow of death, nothing is more practically important than the gospel. And in fact, just two weeks ago, I'm sitting in one of the five um, uh, funerals as I was preparing with one of the family members for the funeral. We were sitting there, dad and I were sitting there with, his, with the brother of the person who had passed on. He's not a member of our church, but had been in the 80s. I grew up with, he was four days younger than me. It's one thing when the people dying are way older than you. When they're younger than you, that feels weird. And as we're talking, the brother of this young man uh, said, you know, I think I'm going to see him again in heaven because I think he was clean when he died. He had struggled with addictions. And we were taking notes to get ready for the funeral, and I kind of just set it aside, and I said, hey, let's talk about that, actually. I said, "How, how do people get made right with God? And he said, well, Jesus grace like that's right so the basis for you saying that you're going to see your brother again is not whether or not he was clean when he died because nobody gets justified by not doing drugs not doing drugs is not what saves you and your brother knew the Lord. I knew that. I knew from personal experience that he had experienced Jesus. He, he had a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ. He made some mistakes, yes. And he said, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. And I reminded him of that statement we made last week. It is only ever and always the obedience of another on your behalf that secures your acceptance by God. I don't remember who actually said that the first time. I, that's not original with me. I quote, I'm quoting somebody, but I don't know who they are, so I'm just not going to give anybody credit. And it's been in my file for more than two years. That makes it research now. That's... But here it is. is only ever and always. Get the words right. It is never because of your performance that you get saved. Never. It's never your performance that makes you acceptable to God. And as we went, we went back to planning the funeral, and as we're planning the funeral, a few minutes later, he says, I, I feel like I'm going to see him again because he was a good guy. I'm like, okay, let's go back to it again. <laughs> nobody, nobody has a relationship with God because they're a, a good guy. Nobody. Not me, not you, no one. This is so ingrained in us. Somehow we think that we have to earn God's love or we think that we can earn God's love, which if you think about it, is the height of hubris and arrogance to think that you (laughs) can earn God's love. It's crazy. But that's how it is, isn't it? We think we have to be good enough to be accepted because that's how we treat other people. We assume that God must be like us on that. So we got to be good enough to be accepted because that's how we, other people got to be good enough for us to accept them. Listen, it is never your obedience to the law that makes you right with God. It has always, it is Jesus. It has always been Jesus. It's always going to be Jesus. It's never going to be your performance. 
Now, when you preach like that, sometimes people misunderstand, and they say things like, and this happened last week as we were talking about the gospel, they're like, well, that makes it sound like you just got a, a license to go out sinning. And if you believe that, you're misunderstanding it. But here's the deal. People misunderstood Paul, too. Look at the very next verse, verse 17. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. Here's the deal. If we're preaching justification by faith, if we're preaching grace as strong as Paul was, the same results are going to happen. And that means some people will misunderstand it. And if somebody, if no one ever misunderstands it, we might be preaching another gospel. Which Paul says is no gospel at all. Of course. He goes on, verse 18. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Now, these kind of confusing verses here, uh, and there's different, some different interpretations, but the best understanding is that Paul is still addressing Peter, okay? He's still addressing Peter, and the Galatians and you and I reading this letter are just listening in, right? We're eavesdropping on their conversation. So when he says, uh, if I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove I'm a lawbreaker, what he means is this. Peter and Paul, too, had been instrumental in tearing down the wall between the Jews and the Gentiles, right? I mean, that, that was... Uh, and they did that because they were following Jesus. That was their understanding of the gospel. And Peter had this vision, you know, where the sheet comes down. He's at Simon the Tanner's house, and it says, kill and eat, but it's unclean animals. No, Lord, I would never, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God speaks to him and says, don't call unclean what I call clean. So then people from Cornelius' house come. Peter goes with them. He goes, he's like, look, and this is, how, how, listen to this way. He, you think I start my sermons bad. This guy, his way was, you know, uh, we usually don't hang out with riffraff like you. That's the beginning of a sermon. And then while he starts preaching Jesus, the spirit of God, he didn't even get to the altar call, didn't have, you know, Dave come back and start playing on the guitar, you know, some, some emotional mood music. No, no. The Spirit of God falls while he's still preaching Jesus. They start speaking in tongues, and he was like, well, I guess we should water baptize them, right? And then the other apostles were like, what are you doing preaching to the Gentiles? I don't know. I just started preaching. The Holy Spirit came. I figured, what do we do? And they're like, well, that means God doesn't show favoritism. So Peter had understood this. This is Acts 10 and 11. But now, when, when people from the circumcision comes, he's eating with Gentiles, but then he pulls away from Gentiles, right? So so what Paul is saying is, so you started eating with Gentiles because of following Jesus. You tore down this wall. Now, if you back up and you rebuild that wall, what you're saying is the tearing down of the wall was sin, which means Jesus led you into sin. Come on, don't be ridiculous. That's the point. Because of course nobody would say Jesus led them into sin. Peter wouldn't say that. Paul wouldn't say that. And then you get to the crescendo. And I've been waiting all week long for verse 20. Because Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 is the crescendo of chapter 2. It's the crescendo of the entire introduction, which is the whole first two chapters. Verse 20 is the greatest, one of the greatest summaries in the Bible of discipleship. It's one of the greatest summaries of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be right with God and have victory over sin. Let's read it. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ 
lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Listen, if you haven't already memorized this verse, this should be your memory verse this week. Right, this, this, you should read this over and over again this week. You should memorize this verse. This is one of the first verses I ever memorized, and it's hard for me not to quote it in the King James. Because I, I memorize, because the King James says, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. The NIV says, I no longer live. Well, which is it? Well, actually, both of them make sense of the Greek because Paul is saying, I'm dead, but I'm still alive. But I'm already dead. But I'm still breathing. In other words, life isn't about me anymore. It's about Christ. That's why he could say in Philippians 1, to live is Christ. <laughs> Look at the verse again, chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now, Paul is speaking here of his and every believer's union with Christ. Okay, I don't know if you know this or not, but as a follower of Jesus, we are united with him. He died not only for us, but he died as us. He was our substitute, our proxy. He died in our place, and we are united with him so that what happened to him also happened to us. Now, that last sentence right there is so deep and profound, we need to unpack that. And to unpack that, Paul explains it deeper in Romans chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, just flip from Galatians 2 to Romans 6 as we kind of unpack this. And, and, and I promise, if you'll just be patient with me for just a minute. No, it's going to be more than a minute. Um, it, it's going to be actually several minutes. But if, if you'll just be patient, I promise you, I promise you that it, it could change your life. Romans 6, he unpacks this, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? See, he preached it so much, he had to say, that's not what I mean. By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know? And, and I would just say, do you know this? Paul says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now just stop right there. What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. There's this shift in Paul's theology before the cross and after the cross. You see, in Ephesians 2, he says, in our natural state, we're dead in sin. That's our natural state, just in ourselves. It's not like we're sick, we're under the weather. No, we dead in sin. But then after the work of the cross, he says, in Romans here, we're dead to sin. Now that one little preposition makes all the difference in the world. Before the cross, we're dead in sin. After the cross, we're dead to sin. He goes on, verse 5, if we have been united with him like this in his death, you see our union with Jesus, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. See, I've been crucified with Christ. 
so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, let me break this down for you very simply. Here's what Paul's saying. I got bad news and I got good news. All right, first, I'm going to give you the bad news. And that's how I, I typically like that too. You know, I like it when somebody says, I got good news and bad news. I'm like, give me the bad news first. All right, so we can end on an upswing. And so Paul says, here's the bad news. Here's the bad news. The only way to ever be free from sin is to die. That's it. That's the only way. The sum total, the sum total of Paul's strategy to defeat sin is this. Die. That's what he's saying. The only time you're going to be fully free from sin is when you're dead. Verse 7, uh, he's, he says right here, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. You're already dead. Bad news, only dead people are get to be free from sin. Good news, you're already dead. Jesus died in your place as you, therefore you died. Oh, this is really good news. Because it means sin is not my master. Look at verse 11 of Romans 6. In the same way, count yourselves. I, I, like, I think, I think it's the King James that says, reckon yourself. That's kind of the Kentucky translation. Um, I, I, you're going to go to the store? I reckon. Uh, I reckon yourselves dead to sin. It means consider your, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Jesus, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. And look at this last sentence, for sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Oh man, this is good. The only way to be free from sin is die. I'm already dead, therefore sin can't rule me anymore. There's a recurring scene that happens in a lot of different movies. I kind of Googled it this week, and I, there was, I don't know, probably half a dozen of them. It's a scene where, uh, you know, somebody has lost everything, uh, and then they're in a conflict with somebody else, and the other person says, I'm going to kill you, and they go, go ahead, I'm already dead. Right, and like in one, it was like a James Bond movie. There's like he's like, I've already had my wife died, my children died. You took my money, you took my house, you took my car. I'm already dead. What was he meaning? He was meaning you can't threaten me, you can't control me anymore because I've already lost everything. I'm already dead. See, how can I say it this way? One of the most deceitful schemes of sin is that when you look in the mirror in the morning, you, you, you look at yourself and you think, I'm always going to be this way. I've always been this way. I'm always going to be this way. I, 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 I've been an angry person my whole life. My dad was an angry person. I'm an angry person, and, and, and I've always been this way. I'm, I'm always going to be controlled by it. I've always been a bitter person. Something bad happened to you, and you refused to forgive, and you became bitter over it. And you look in the mirror, and that's just who you are. It becomes your identity. You're bitter, or you're lustful, or you're, or you're proud, or, or you're insecure. Maybe you're dealing with an addiction, and you just think this addiction is too big for me. It's just, and you look in the mirror, and you think, this is who I am. And then you take that sin, and you make it your sin. And when you do that, you're adopting sin as your identity, 
And when that happens, the devil will come and he'll, he will whisper in your ear, hey, you got to do this sin because, by the way, you've always been this way. See, according to the scripture, you being dead and you dying with Jesus, whenever the devil says, you're going to have to do this sin because you've always been, you can just say, oh, no, Mr. Devil, you must have me confused with the old man. Now I understand how you confuse. We look a lot alike, you know. We're both, you know, regularly handsome, a lot of fun to have at a party. But the old Tim is dead. See, I died with Christ, who, by the way, devil, triumphed over you in the cross. So I don't have to do that. Why? Because I'm already dead. You ha- I have been crucified with Christ. That theme goes on throughout the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 24. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passion and desires. Chapter 6, verse 14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I'm already dead. Sin doesn't get to be in charge of me anymore. That only happened when I was alive, but now I'm dead. It went 31 years ago, I think it was, I was a YWAM, and, and, and back then in DTS, they had a 14-hour teaching on the book of Romans by Paris Reedhead. 14 hours straight of like it's called So Great Salvation. And it was really deep and profound, but he was very monologue, and, and you were trying to doze off while you're getting this great truth. And I don't remember a lot of what he said in those 14 hours, but I've never forgotten one thing he said. He said with this whole thing of of, of Romans 6 and Galatians 2, we were crucified with Jesus. He says, when you see Jesus on the cross in your mind's eye, you should imagine there's Jesus on the cross. The nails go through his hands. They go through his feet. They go into the wood of the cross. They come out on the other side. And when you turn the cross around, there you are crucified with him. Because you are dead to sin. He died as us. As if we were there, we died with him. Some of you still aren't getting this. Let me try a couple more times. When the baseball player Jackie Robinson overcame the racism of the era, what what, what they called back then breaking the color barrier in pro baseball, he was booed constantly. He received all kinds of uh, death threats, a steady barrage of threats. And one game, uh, I believe it was in Cincinnati, if I'm not mistaken, the Brooklyn Dodgers, because this is back when they were the Brooklyn Dodgers, Mark, not the L.A. Dodgers. They were the Brooklyn Dodgers. And I think they are playing in Cincinnati. And the booing was so violent. They were throwing bottles onto the field. It was terrible. Louisville's own Pee Wee Reese walks over to Jackie Robinson and stands beside Jackie Robinson and puts his arm around him. People quit screaming, and the noise died down, and the language reduced, and quietness filled the air. And later, Jackie Robinson said, I would have quit baseball that very day if Pee Wee had not done what he did. Now, I want you to listen to me. On the cross... Jesus did more than stand beside you. Now, it's pretty awesome that Pee Wee would stand beside Jackie Robinson. And by the way, in a lot of the racial things in America right now, it would help if we just stood beside each other. But in the cross of Jesus Christ, he didn't just stand beside you. He stood in your place. 
so that in his death you died. 2 Corinthians 5.14, one died for all, therefore all died. Back in 91, my dad gave me a book called Born Crucified by L.E. Maxwell. And it's just about this whole thing in Romans chapter 6. And in the book, Maxwell tells a story from the Civil War. There was a man in the Civil War by the name of George Wyatt. George Wyatt was married. Uh, he had six children. His wife was very sick, and he was having to take care of his wife. And some of his children were very young, and he was dealing with them. And he got conscripted for service in the military. And he didn't know who would take care of his wife. You know, she needed care and attention, and he didn't know who would take care of his kids. Until his best friend, a, a guy by the name of Richard Pratt. Pratt wasn't married. Pratt didn't have any kids. Pratt was in great health. He went to Wyatt, and he said, instead of you going, let me go in your place. And so he took Wyatt's name, Richard Pratt, took George Wyatt's name. He took his identification number. He went in, and he saw combat, and he died. The next year, they tried to conscript George Wyatt again for service, and he went to them and said, I've already died in identification with Pratt, who was my substitute. And so they had this little court tribunal kind of thing. They heard the case, and, and they judged. The court said he had already died in the person of his representative, and he could not be drafted again. This is precisely what happened on the cross. Jesus took our, he took my identification number. He took my name. He died as me in my place, so the devil has no authority over me. He can't draft me again to do his bidding. Sin doesn't have authority over me. I'm already dead. And so are you. Do you dare believe that? And see, it's not, here's the thing. It's not just that you're dead to sin. That's when this whole, I am crucified with Christ. That is the first thing it means. But it also is about death. Are you ready for this? To self. Which at first sounds terrible, okay, but it's actually one of the greatest forms of freedom you will ever experience in your life. Look at the text. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Meaning, life isn't about me. My life isn't about me anymore. It's about Christ. I've already been crucified. I'm already dead, which means I don't have to live under the tyranny of selfishness anymore. This is incredibly freeing. Incredibly freeing. See, living under the dictatorship of selfishness is exhausting. I mean, if you're living your life as if it's all about you, and, and for you to be happy... Circumstances have to go your way, and people got to recognize you, and to be happy, people got to celebrate you, and people got to treat you like you're the king or you're the queen, then you are in bondage to your selfishness. And let me just tell you something. The God of self is a tyrant, ruthless, despotic ruler who's never satisfied. Listen, I don't have to be ruled by self anymore because I'm not Lord. Jesus is Lord. I died with him. Now he lives in me. The God of self can't incarcerate me anymore. He can't imprison me. I'm already dead. And because of that, I don't have to depend on other people to make me happy. This is really good news. See, if you're, if you're, if you're living your life all about you, then you're going to go out places expecting people to treat you a certain way, give you a certain thing, and you're looking to get something from them for you to be okay. 
But here's the deal. I'm not dependent on other people to give me my value, my worth, my identity. I get all of that from Jesus. I'm already dead. He lives in me. So that's where my value and my worth comes from. That means I'm free to live as if nobody owes me anything. This is freedom. I mean, this is freedom. If you can get to the point where the gospel so thoroughly saturates you that you go throughout your day truly believing nobody owes me anything, then nobody controls you. And if you don't know, see, you guys, you don't owe me anything. You don't owe me anything. I'm not trying to get something from you. As long as I'm trying to get my value, my worth, my security from you, then I'm not really loving you. I'm just treating you nice so you give me what I want. But if I get what I need from Jesus because I'm dead, Jesus lives in me. I get my worth, my value, my significance. Do you see that spit come out? I get all this. I'm so excited. It's just like. If I get my worth and value and significance from Jesus, then nobody owes me anything. And you know what that means? I'm free to love you. It doesn't even matter how you treat me. You don't owe me nothing except let me love you. That's it. Why? Because, watch this, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Okay, Tim. Then I know what some of you are thinking, because I know some of you. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, okay, Tim, if we're dead to sin and self, then why are we so often controlled by sin and self? Answer, according to the text, either we don't know it, or we don't believe that we died with Christ. Those are our two options. Either you don't know this, or, or you don't really believe that you're already dead. And you don't, you don't do what Paul said. Consider, reckon yourself dead to sin. Consider, count yourself dead to sin. And why don't we do it? Well, because at the core, we often don't trust God's heart for us. That is why you get the end of verse 20. Look at the end of verse 20. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, this theme of Jesus giving himself is a theme that runs throughout the New Testament. I can't give you all the examples. I'll give you a couple. Ephesians 5, 2. He says, live a life of love. So this is how you should live. Here's how you should, when you leave here today, here's how you should live. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. See, Jesus didn't have his life taken from him. He gave it. Somebody loves you that much. Ephesians 5 verse 25, husbands, how should you love? Here, husbands, when you leave here, here's how you should love your wives. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, at the core, much of the sin we commit comes from the fact that we do not truly believe in our heart of hearts that God has our best interests in mind. We, we don't really believe that he loved us. He gave himself for us. And Paul makes it very personal here. I mean, in Ephesians 5, he says he loved us and gave himself for us. Uh, you know, in, in verse 25 of Ephesians, he says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. That's collectively. That's corporately. But in Galatians 2.20, he said he loved me. He gave himself for me. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, is a fourth century church father. He, he put it this way. Chrysostom means golden mouth. That's why he was really clever 
and articulate, and so they called him Golden Mouth, a name I have never been accused of, okay? He says this, Paul speaks in this highly personal voice. He shows that each of us ought to render as much thanks to Christ as though Christ had come for him alone. This is how grateful you should be, as if Jesus only came for you. For God would not have withheld this gift even from one person. He has the same, listen to this sentence. Wow, I wish I wrote this. He has the same love for every individual as for the whole world. Did you get that? Paul said, he loved me. He gave himself for me. It's part, do you really believe that? That he loves you as much as he loves the whole world? <laughs> just, this will blow your mind if you just think about it for a second. What he's saying here is faith in Christ is only sustained when you are confident of his love. Love is the fuel of faith. And when you're confident that he loves you, that's when you trust him. See, go back. We, we started with this story about Eichmann and, and, and sin coming into the world and how we're going to be righted with God. Well, and, and that all started in Genesis chapter 3 when there's this serpent and he's trying to tempt Adam and Eve, right? Did you notice the serpent doesn't target belief in God? The serpent doesn't say, oh, there's not really a God. He doesn't even go for that. What does he target? God's character. You're not, listen, he told you you would die. You're not going to die. God just knows you'll be like him. God's holding out on you. See, God had given him one rule in the garden, don't eat of this tree, and he didn't even tell him why. I mean, he told him the result, like if you eat from this tree, death is going to come. But he didn't say why, like don't eat from the tree because, you know, it's super high in carbs. <laughs> that would have been enough for some of us. We'd be like, whoa, hey, oh, no, I just, I got this wedding coming up. I can't eat no carbs. I... He didn't tell him why. Here, obey me. Don't eat from this tree. Why? Just because you love me and you trust that I love you. And I'm giving you this rule, don't eat from this tree because I love you. And so what did the serpent do? Character assassination. You can't trust God. You can't trust his love. You can't trust his goodwill. If you submit to God, you're going to be held. I mean, this is like fear of FOMO, fear of missing out. If you obey God, you're going to miss out. He knows you'll be just like him, so you need to take life in your own hands. God is holding out on you. Let me tell you something, guys. That lie has passed into every human heart. Every one of us at some point has doubted God's love for us. Every one of us at some point believed that God was holding out on us. Sinclair Ferguson illustrates that by telling a story that I'll just tell. It's all right. Imagine it's around Christmas time. And there's a dad, and he's got a little boy, and he's taking him to a toy store, you know, like a toy superstore. Like they used to have, you know, Toys R Us. Do they, does that still exist? I don't think. Toy, it's sad for children today. Um, <laughs> but they used to have Toys R Us, which for the children was a store of toys. And in this story, this dad brings this little boy in, and he brings him over here, and he says, hey, do you like that? It's a, you know, like a model of the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars. And he says, oh, yes, Daddy, would you like to have that? Oh, yes, Daddy, I would love to have that. What about this over here? It's, you know, action figures of, of the Avengers. Would you like that? Oh, yes, Daddy, I would love that. And how about, there's a bicycle over here. Look at this shiny bike. It's so cool. Oh, Daddy, I would love to have that. Would you like that? Oh, I would love that so much. What about this over here? It's a PlayStation 
12. What, what number are we on, PlayStation? Four or five? This is a PlayStation 5. Would you like to have that? Oh, yes, Daddy, I would love to have that. And they get to the end of the store, and the dad says, now, I brought you here because I want you to know. See all those nice, shiny things? Oh, yes, Daddy. You're not getting any of them. See all this? You get none of it. Let's go home. Not a very good dad, is it? Truth is, that's what many of you, many of you believe about, in your heart of hearts, about who God is. There are some of you, when something good happens in your life, you don't even take time to enjoy it because you think if you get too happy, God's going to rip it away from you. You're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. If you're having a good day, you feel guilty or you feel nervous because something bad's about to happen because that's how God is. He's like, you like this? You're like, oh, yes, Daddy. You're not getting it. And a lot of you, that's how you see God. That lie has passed into your heart. See, a lot of people don't believe God has their best interests at heart. And when you believe that, here's what you do. You might do a business deal with God, but you don't really trust his heart. Because you think, you think, some of you in here right now, you think God's holding out on you. Oh, yeah. You don't trust his heart. You think you've got to take charge of your own life. You can't trust, you got you're on your own. That is why, and I see this all the time, and so do you, people who are working themselves to death trying to prove to themselves and everybody else their value. Why? Because they don't trust God's love enough to get their value from him. I see people all the time who demonize other people, tear people down, criticize to bolster their own self-worth. Why? Because they don't trust God enough to get their worth from him. I see it all the time. People exhausting themselves trying to control every little thing in their life, their family, their children, their finances, the politics, the business, the church, everything, and they are eat up with anxiety. Eat up. Why? Because they don't trust the love of God enough to get that sense of security from him. This lie is the root of all sin. It was in Genesis 3. We got to do it ourselves. You can't trust God's heart. We got to take life into our own hands. We can't trust God to do it. And that is why when you get to the end of verse 20, that lie is destroyed, slain. Listen, if you don't believe God is for you and absolutely not holding out on you, if you're struggling with that, you ought to meditate on this verse. And I don't mean meditate in the Eastern mysticism sort of idea. I mean meditate in the biblical sense. Turn it over in your mind. Think about it. Pray about it. See it. Say it over. Marinate in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Oh, yeah. Sin, you're not in charge anymore. I'm dead. Self, you're not in charge anymore. I'm dead. Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, you need to let this verse in. You need to personalize this verse. You need to memorize it, quote it, sing it, say it over and over and over again. And you say, well, how long do we need to do that, Tim? (laughs) Until you believe it. Until you believe it. Until it exposes the lie in your heart that refuses to trust Jesus' heart. He loved me. Gave himself for me. N.T. Wright 
in his commentary on Galatians, ends this section with these words, and I quote, There is enough sheer argument in Galatians 2 to excite the sharpest mind, but unless we also see that there is enough love to melt the hardest heart, Paul would say, we miss the point. Don't miss the point. Let it in. I have been crucified with Christ. Now I no longer live, but Christ lives in me.